The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my special guest, Alejandro Alcacer. Welcome to A Current Life, Alejandro. Thank you, Jimmy. I appreciate it. Uh, Alejandro is uh, calling in from, uh, from Berlin, so uh, uh, I appreciate that you're taking this time, and I want to give you the proper introduction. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely uh, happy that uh, you agreed to be a guest on the show. Alejandro is a fashion designer, author, caterer, chef, and entrepreneur. He rejects titles, however. He readily describes himself as a person with little patience and restless energy, adding that he is interested in many things. He takes passion and turns it into design. Alejandro, the show is about life's journey and the ups and the downs that each of us experience as we try to overcome to get to wherever each of us is meant to be. So on that note, I'd like to start with your early years and ask you, where did you grow up as a child, and what was it like uh, uh, growing up as a child? Um, I was I grew up in in Mexico City, and then when I was four years old, I moved to Cuernavaca, Mexico, which is a town in the outskirts of Mexico City. And I'm the I have five siblings, and I grew up in a very busy household. My father worked a lot, and we traveled a lot with him, so I was able to very early on lived in different cities, visited different countries. And my father being an engineer, we were brought up with the idea that we could pretty much make anything. We don't necessarily need to buy things. We can just make them. My mother um, is a Steiner advocate, so she follows Rudolf Steiner's philosophy. And Rudolf Steiner is the person that started this whole... um, movement of natural schools, of creative thinking. And now some of those um, technologies have been used by the Montessori schools. Let me ask you, uh, you know, the show goes into about 180-plus countries. 
uh, around the entire world. And, and, you know, for those people who have not been to Mexico City or grown up or visited Mexico, what is it like uh, through the eyes of a child to be in Mexico? Because I think all of us have different perspectives about different countries. You've lived in so many countries and traveled in so much. What was it like being a child in, in Mexico City and in Mexico? Well, Mexico City you know, at the time was like the second largest city in the world. And very early on, we just uh, noticed how fortunate we were to work, you know, to having the access to all this traveling and all this information and, and to the time that our parents devoted to us. At the time in Mexico, there was a very, very big divide, economic divide between the people that had and the people that didn't have. Practically, you know, when I was growing up, there was in the middle class. So very early on, we were um, aware that we needed to have a social conscience, that we needed to, in the same way that we were fortunate and grateful of what we had, we had to use those resources to help people as well. Do you have a, a fondest memory that you can look back on and think about as a child, a moment maybe that stands out for you that made you really happy? I think the moment that that makes me the most happiest when I was growing up is the fact that my father encouraged me to to do all kinds of things. And then those things, you know, he was building this uh, big dam, and they had he they had access to all this heavy machinery. And he taught me how to use a very large um, crane. And I remember early on, you know, this, this sense of satisfaction when I was able to lift something up and bring it to where it was supposed to be. And and having my father, you know, next to me and, and getting that appreciation for him and that sense of accomplishment for myself was one of the things that I remember the most. How, how old were you at that time? I was eight years old. Wow. So at an early age, you really were exposed to a lot of things by your parents that were both creative as well as, you know, using heavy machinery and things like that. I mean, it's a, it's a combination that probably has stayed with you your whole life. Let me ask you, was there a particular moment that stands out that was maybe the toughest moment that you can remember, and how did you overcome that tough time? Well, I feel like the toughest time that I had growing up is the loss of my brother. I lost a brother when I was 10 years old, and the circumstances in which he died were very, very painful. He, in in the town where we were brought up in Cuernavaca, the weather is very warm, and there are a lot of uh, thunderstorms, and, and it rains pretty much every night. And sometimes it rains so much that it... Um, sometimes uh, messes up the chemistry of the swimming pools in the sense that the water, you know, doesn't become very clear or becomes like a little um, muddy in a way. And in one of these days, we were all swimming, and my four-year-old brother at the time apparently had a brain aneurysm, and nobody noticed that he that he went down in the pool and drowned. So that was like very early on, you know, going through these laws. Um, you know, that was one of the toughest moments for me. We were all in the pool, and, and, and obviously all of us felt responsible, and 
really, in, in hindsight, there was really nothing that we could have done. But at the moment, there was this overwhelming sense of responsibility and, and of love. I imagine. So the reason that, that I bring this up is because I feel like, I mean, the way that I was able to work this out is, you know, it seems like, you know, in the Western world, we have a very different way to deal with death or loss, you know, and that in the Eastern world have a much um, broader sense of what it means to, to die or what it means to live this. Do you do you do you so agree they have that, a very um, different sense? I'm sorry. Do you agree that it's more of a passing in the Eastern culture as opposed to the Western culture? I mean, is that the biggest difference? Whereas there seems to be more of a beginning and an end, final end in the Western culture. In the Eastern culture, it seems to be more of a continuum. Is that accurate or not? Yeah, that's accurate. Definitely, I I firmly believe that. And and in, and in that. I mean, you know, uh, first of all, my, you know, my sincere, you know, feelings for you and what you went through. Um, we've talked about things like this. We, we, to the audience, we've had a chance, you and I, to get to know each other and visit together and spend time together. And you're a remarkably spiritually grounded human being with, with great, you know, creative spirit. And um, you and I talked a lot about overcoming tough times and we'll talk later in the show about what you overcame specifically besides this but do you feel that that uh that that death is looked at as kind of a um, just just in a in a in a in a different way and and that it therefore uh helps in not that it's not tough but it helps maybe in being able to deal with the loss in a different way than maybe in this culture Absolutely. And how yes, do you think I mean, I, how, how do you think it takes its shape, you know, in terms of the reality of it all? I mean, what do people do differently in, in Mexico or in that culture? Well, you know, in, in Mexico, you know, like you know, death definitely means you know, the end. And, you know, we have like a family rooted um Catholic culture, you know, so I seem like at the time, what I was saying in Mexico, like 90% of the people that lived in Mexico were Catholics. And I feel like, you know, in, in the Catholic religion in Mexico, there was a definite end of, you know, of your life, you know. And, and you know, in, in that regard, I guess, like, um, very, very difficult to overcome the loss when you think about being final, as opposed to when you think that it's something that, you know, even though this person is not around, Energetically, it's still around, and and it will eventually. You if you will eventually, you know, be in contact with person right. that you love right. in, a, in a future life. Let me let me ask you: um, Was school something that you look forward to going to? Was it something you did well at? What was the big motivation growing up that made you so creative? Besides, obviously, the effect your mom had on you in teaching you that, but. Was there something in school, was there a favorite subject, a favorite teacher, something that was a part of your school life, you know, that really made a difference and stood out for you? Because I've always felt in these interviews that, you know, one or two people make all the difference in where you head, head and end up in your life. Um, absolutely, I agree. I, I agree with you. I feel like in terms of, you know, of that, the sports, you know, were, were somewhat of a big part, you know, in my opinion. And... 
in this uh, particular school that we were brought up in, you know, we have like the support to go into any sport that that we wanted. And my, you know, sport of, of choice at the time was just skateboarding. And skateboarding is very interesting because it's it's one of those sports where you can just do something in your own. And where you can be, you know, incredibly creative because there are practically no rules. And I remember this um, professor, this mathematics um, professor. And at the time, like, I was very, I was always very distracted in school. And, and somehow, you know, like, physics and mathematics, you know, I, I didn't have a good relationship with. But this mathematics teacher, like, you know, started to show me, you know, how to apply, like, all this mathematics concepts to what I was doing, you know, with the skateboard. And at some point, like, you know, he, one of the tricks that I was telling him, you know, that I had trouble with, but I was trying to land this trick. And he looked at it, and, and he looked at all the specifics of it, and he actually gave me the mathematical representation of what that trick meant, you know, taking into yeah. consideration the speed and the gravity and everything. And, and it was something that he worked on for a long time to try to... Um, Decipher, and at that point, like I just downed on me that, yeah, all these concepts as abstract as they seem when you're trying to learn them, they do apply in anything that you do in your life. So I guess like um, this teacher really, really opened my eyes to to that sense of everything that that we learn one way or another. You know, it's incredibly, you know elemental to every part of our life. So you went on, actually, at the age of 16 and launched your own business, which was a, a you published a skateboard magazine and you launched a skateboard distribution company known as Ballskate. Uh, I assume that this was all the outgrowth of your passion for skateboarding. And tell us about that whole production. Well, you know, at 16, I, I decided that I was, I graduated um high school two years earlier than most of my class. So at 16, I was ready to go to college. And and at, at 16, my father wanted me really to go to college. I was accepted with a scholarship to MIT. And my father had gone to graduate school in MIT. So it was very important for him that I go to that same school and that he was had in his mind that at some point, you know, I would take over his company. And at 16, like, I didn't want to be the youngest person in in, in college. And I told my, my father, I said, you know what, I want to go and travel for two years. And my father, in the way to persuade me to stay in the school, he, he mentioned that he was going to um, charge me for the lifestyle that I was receiving. And, and me being very proud and, and, you know, 16 years old, I said, like, no way, I cannot afford this, and I left at 16. So at 16, I find myself, like, really not knowing what I wanted to do, just that I knew that I didn't want to call my parents for money. And while I was skateboarding in Los Angeles, where I moved to, to stay at a house of an uncle, I noticed that all of my friends that were skateboarding were launching their own companies. And I had a surviving brother in Mexico, 10 years younger than me, and then I started to send in some of the things that my friends were making. 
And he started to call me and say, well, send more because more people want, you know, some of these things. And I kept sending more. And at some point, you know, one of the persons that owned the largest store in Mexico contacted me directly, and, and we became partners. So that's how I started that that business. And, and you know, I feel like I started a lot of business in in that way, in, you know, doing something that I really like to do. And I feel like you have to really put yourself out there. And if you don't put yourself out there, you never know. You know, what are you really capable of? Well, the thing, the thing that I've noticed about you and the thing that I think we have in common is that you're really driven by your passion. I mean, and people who don't, aren't passionate about something should not even get out of bed, in my opinion, during the day because you have to have passion drives your energy. It, it, it makes everything that you're doing much more, you know, real and, and allows you to work harder and better and 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 have faith and and it really comes from your heart from inside you from your god-given you know intuition and all those things so it sounds to me that you've pursued those things in your life that you've been passionate about and one of the things that happened at the age of 18 is you became you know encouraged to start cooking and eventually became a chef and 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 known for being a chef uh and and a creator and and I want to know what, what and how did you get encouraged to start cooking at the age of 18? Well, I was very fortunate growing up that we had we were brought up with very good food. So when I left my house at 16, I missed food so much. It was, I couldn't find the food that I was brought up with, which was, you know, simple and, and, and very clean food. And, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to were brought up in a community that had access to farms and animals, and my grandparents had a ranch. So I was always exposed to all this really fresh, wholesome food. And when I moved at 16, I was I couldn't find it anywhere. And at some point, you know, two years into it, I remember calling my grandmother and telling her, like, wow, this is really hard, you know, I cannot find the food that I like. And she said, well, you should learn how to make it. And, yeah... And it was one of those things that, well, why is it that I didn't think about that before? But, you know, obviously in Mexico at that time, like, men don't really cook that much. So it didn't really occur to me. And she suggested that I go to see this chef in Spain that that her family, you know, had gone to the restaurant. They were very fond of this restaurant. And, and she made a phone call, and I went to this restaurant in San Sebastian, which I didn't know, but at the time that I arrived to the restaurant, I, I realized and I was told that this was the best restaurant in Spain. Like, at the time, you know, there were very few restaurants that had three Michelin stars in Spain, and this was one of them. So the chef reluctantly <laughs> agreed to take me on as an intern, and I proved myself to him and to myself, and he allowed me to stay for years, and that's how I learned how to cook, and to this day, I mean, there isn't one meal that I wouldn't like to cook myself. Let me add, well, you know, uh, now that I know that, I should have taken advantage of it when you visited me and had you cook a special meal, but we didn't do that. <laughs> so, next time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm used to cooking for people, so next time I visit you, we should definitely do that. You just have to know that 
I can the minimum amount of people that I cook for is twelve. I will have so I will have I will have fifteen. You either have bring twelve friends or you're gonna have leftovers for a week. <laughs> <laughs> I will have fifteen people there and I will not be finicky like I normally am. So let me talk to you about a difficult experience in your life that I don't know how many of your fans and many, many followers know about. I mean, you know, there was just a beautiful article written about you in the Wall Street Journal, and, and, and I applaud you on that. You've done some amazing things, and you're, you're really known as just one of the premier designers in the world. Uh, when you were 22, you were working in San Diego at the California Cafe, and there was an explosion, and it left you in a coma for three months. Uh, and I, we've talked about this offline, but I'd like you to explain to our audience what that was like in terms of coming out of that and, and waking up after three months and kind of your, you know, thoughts about that. Uh, I'd like to kind of spend a few minutes on that before we go to break and understand what that did for you. And also, was there a silver lining in it? Well, um, yes, you know, I, I was cooking at the time in, in Europe and things like I came to this very, you know, renowned restaurant. I started to get all these job offers, and one of the those job offers was to do consulting for a um, Hyatt restaurant in San Diego. When I arrived to the Hyatt restaurant in San Diego, they wanted they were expecting a chef that could do like Asian fusion food, and I said, "Well, I'm not your person because I don't I don't know how to make that kind of food, and and I'm not very interested in in pursuing that." So I am, I found myself in San Diego and and I called it, you know, a few friends that I had in the restaurant wall and they said, Well, there's this restaurant, they have like five restaurants along California and they're looking for somebody to do consulting on their menu. And I said, Oh, perfect. So I called them up and they asked me to come to the restaurant to to just give them a, a sample of what I could do or what I would like to do in their restaurant. So at the time, they didn't have any information about me other than my name and my phone number. And and I went to do this tasting for them. And they had a very beautiful open kitchen. And one of the walls that connected, you know, to the preparation kitchen and the service kitchen had a gas leak. So... At some point, you know, trying to light up one of the stoves, you know, I had a really hard time, and, and it wasn't lighting up, and, and then, like, you know, I put a, a match in it, and I was able to light up another with burner directly next to it. So I turned this burner, and sometimes in the commercial stuff, I mean, one burner doesn't start right away. You turn off the following one, and you slam a pan with it, so what it does is, like, expands the gas below it, and eventually comes on. So when I, I slammed the stand below it, it did expand the gas, but it, it triggered this explosion. So all the gas from that, that was trapped in that wall came out. And one of the, there's a, there's this very large piece of equipment in commercial kitchens called salamanders that are usually at head level. And yeah, this thing blew off and cracked my skull. So, so I found myself, you know, like I I had a broken skull and I had a lot of lacerations in my face. And since I had a broken skull, I couldn't move. And since I had all these lacerations in my face, I couldn't, um, there were all these bandages around me. So when I came out of the coma, I didn't even remember who I was. 
and there was no visual connection of who I was because I couldn't even see my face and I couldn't even get out of bed. And not only that, but also since the restaurant didn't really know anything about me, they couldn't contact my family either. Yeah. So, so that was very, very, very hard. And slowly, when I mean, after I came out from the coma, like I started to heal little by little, you know, like mentally, and I started to you know, get some of my memory back. And and fortunately, you know, when I started to get some of my memory back, I started to 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 sort of like understand, you know, who I was even though mm-hmm. I, did, I couldn't see myself, you know, and I could only see my, my eyes, that everything around was always bandaged. And, you know, when I, when I saw my, my face for the first time, it was still pretty, pretty uh, hurt. And, and, yeah, there were, like, a series of, you know, uh, plastic surgeries that I had in order to, to get my face where it is today. So, yeah, that process was incredibly difficult, and I feel like, I mean, in, in hindsight, it's, it's been the best thing that could ever happen to me because as I started to heal, I got a different sense of what life is, and, and I really, I'm really, really fortunate that I'm alive. And with that, I, I, I like to do as much as I can just to celebrate that. Well, you know, I, um, we're going we're, we're gonna to take a short break. I, uh, I appreciate that you told us about that, and I do want to touch a little bit when we come back, obviously, on all the achievements since then that, that have happened in your life. And I do want to spend a minute about that silver lining because I think a lot of people you know, need to learn about that and in their own lives. We're all going through difficult times, but... I I am so honored to have uh, Alejandro Alcacer as our my special guest today on a current life. Brought to you by Smartwater and AdSpace Mall Network. Please stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Thank you. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould. I'm here with my very special guest, Alejandro Alcacer. Alejandro, uh, before the break, um, we started to touch upon a concept of the silver lining in the tragedy of, of the explosion that you were in and, and being in a coma for three months and regaining your memory and really piecing your life back together. Can you address for a second a little bit about the silver lining and about how this affected you and kind of the blessing that you received as a result of this and how this really made you so deeply appreciative of life and, and gave you the passion and the drive and the adventure to go out there and do the things that you've done? Well, you know, I feel like uh, one of the things that I realize, and this is something that I think it has been the largest lesson that I came through with, is that, you know, doesn't really matter you know, what happens to you. Because what happens to you, anything that happens, whether it's a, so whether it's something that it's good or whether it's something that is challenging, there's always something to be learned about. And in this particular instance, I feel like I started to take a different approach to how I live my life. Because I realized that even something like that, you know, I survived it. And... And by surviving that, I could really look at things and say, well, yes, it is scary, or yes, it is challenging, or yes, you know, I'm afraid to do this. But, hey, I already went through that, so I don't think it's going to be worse than that. And even if it's worse than that, I'm sure I can survive it. So, and I also feel like I have a very spiritual practice in that sense, and I really believe that, you know, no matter, you know, who do you believe in or what religion you follow, I really feel that there's there's someone out there, you know, there's like that is never gonna give you anything that you're not able to handle come through or that you're not able to learn something about. And I really feel like these are the big lessons in life and, and as hard as they could seem, you know, while they're happening in retrospect, there are the things that give you tremendous growth. I've always believed what you just said. Um, uh, mine came about about, well, it happened when I was a child, when my mother died, and also when I was about 28 years ago, uh, when an event changed my life forever. And I'm sure all of our listeners, everybody has suffered through something. But I'm, I'm, it's, I find remarkable about you is that, there's a calmness and a peacefulness about you, and yet underneath there's so much that you want to achieve and accomplish, and it feels like you've been touched. And I feel that when I'm with you. I feel a sense of, of, of kind of a state of mind that I get from you, and I, that's why I like working with you and you know, developing our friendship. So I, I appreciate that you've shared this with us. I, 
I, I think most people have probably read about you and your incredible desire to, um, you're, you love to collect watches of all kinds, and, and I guess the Rolex probably sticks out the most uh, because you were asked by Rolex to create an limited edition black Rolex, and that really was one of the more defining creations that you've had amongst many, whether it's the handbags with Hermes, or, and we'll talk about that as well. But can you give us a little background on the, on the limited edition black Rolex, how many watches you created, how quickly they sold, what prices they were at, you know, the whole thing, and what was the inspiration behind that? Well, the inspiration behind it, Jimmy, was that at some point, you know, Rolex, you know, made his watch, and and Rolex is a is a is is a very, you know, it's an it's an amazing company. They have an amazing story, you know, the way that the whole company was founded, you know, and how they went, you know, from the UK to Switzerland to look for the best watchmakers, and and in the process there were these black watch that they made in the 70s that is incredibly hard to find. And while I was collecting watches, that was like the watch that I, that I was missing in my collection, and it is the priciest watch that is one of the priciest watches that are um, in the Rolex range. So as I, as I covered this watch, and as I thought about having this watch increasingly, I decided, you know, I could try to make my own black watch. And I started to do all kinds of research as to how to make uh, stainless steel black in a permanent way and and use an, an existing stainless steel piece and just find a coating that would stick to it without painting it. A coating that would be intrinsically... Um, Part of this um, steel, and I came through, and after many different tests, and after working with a few different companies, I came through with the with the process and with the compound based with carbon that allowed me that possibility. And when I did that, and I started to show this piece around, everybody loved it. So that made me think about like, well, I should make some more, and. And that's when we started this whole collection. They are, initially there were 350 pieces. 50 pieces for each model, seven different models. And I took like the most iconic models that Rolex has made from like 1958 all the way till 1990. And we look for the best pieces with the best patina to make them part of that collection. And we have very, very fortunate that the collection has been very well received by collectors and also by people that appreciate, you know, timepieces. And at this point, three quarters of the collection have been sold, and the prices range between twenty-five thousand and one hundred and eighty thousand, depending wow. on the year, depending on the patina, and depending on the how special or how rare the models are. Will, will you be making more uh, and creating new additions? We are thinking of, of approaching like a couple of other companies just because I have never made a watch for women. 
And we realized that a, a large percentage of our buyers of these watches were women. And and they settled for a large piece because we didn't have a small piece. So we are right now talking to a few different companies about doing a watch specifically for women without black process. Let, let me ask you while you're uh, about that. I want to know about your, because you started early on with handbags and airmaids. And I want to know your connection to that because I've always felt that handbags were such a big item and I always felt there was a market for handbags where people trade up and trade down and do all those kinds of things. Am I correct about that? And kind of what was your relationship with Hermes and, and the handbags? Well, my relationship with Hermes is more of an inspirational relationship. I looked at Hermes as a, as a company that produces an impeccable product. Yeah. And this company, you know, approached their business in a utilitarian basis, which is the same way in which I approach all my designs. I don't think like I would never design something that didn't have a specific compelling use. And in this case, you know, Hermes started to make the best um, pack equipment and saddles and all kinds of, of um, products for the question um, segments of, of, the, of the world were buying all these incredibly, you know, meticulously made products. And out of that, you know, they grew into, you know, okay, so now we have the persons that are buying our products for their horses, like, and for riding their horses. Now they're going to need something where they carry the things, you know, around. So we're going to make bags. And that's how the whole company started. They started with a very um, defined purpose. And out of that defined purpose, they expanded their product line and their designs. And in that regard, I guess I've been collecting Hermes bags because every single design has been made with a use in mind. It's not a company that follows trends. It's not a company that follows, you know, whatever is hot this season or whatever is hot the next. It's actually a company that defines a very, very sophisticated sense of crab machine and style. Well, you know, so I'm, with my I, bags, right. I, came, I came to my business of making bags when I was looking for a present for a friend of mine, and I couldn't find the bag that I liked. And some of the bags that I liked the most were the Hermes bags. But they are incredibly expensive. And at the time, the, the price of them really, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't afford something like that. So I decided to call my meat purveyor and ask him as to where what we was doing with his skins, and he told me, you know, where I could get them, and then I started to do research as to what was the best way to tan leather and how was the best way to dye leather, and eventually, you know, I made a bag, and in the process of making a bag, I ordered three skins, so then now I found myself with a lot of leftover leather, and I started to make more bags, and friends and, and people that I showed them to love them, and that's how... I developed my own 
line of bags, which, by okay. the way, they're all made in, in America by hand. And one, they, one thing you got to promise me is on my next birthday that you'll design me a, like kind of a knockoff Hermes tie, because I only wear Hermes ties, so I'm a huge fan of Hermes ties, because I always feel like each one is unique and really beautiful and special, and I think that's kind of your inspiration with your bags, I would think. Oh, no, I agree. And I would definitely, I, I, I love to design a, a tie, you know. I can't um, find one. I can't find, I need more. to find the perfect tie to wear with a charcoal gray suit. So I'll let you figure that okay. out because I trust you completely. So um, let me ask you a question. You have this fascination, and I saw you recently, uh, a photograph of you with a Porsche 914S. Tell me about that project. And, and, and again, you know, what was it about that particular model that, that really inspired you? Well, I think that my earliest memory of this car is like my uncle, you know, had been collecting cars and has been around race cars all his life. And at some point, you know, he had access to one of the race car versions of the Porsche 914, and I was able to ride next to him. And this was very early on. I was probably like six years old. So this car always stuck in my mind. And as I was growing up, you know, this car was always the car that I liked. And when I started to look into the car, the car has an amazing story itself. The car was made, you know, the first car was made in 1969 of this model. And at the point, at that time, Porsche was at the verge of bankruptcy. And Ferdinand Porsche, which was the owner of the company and the main designer of the cars that Porsche was producing, was an incredible engineer. He was trying to always make the fastest vehicle, the safest vehicle, and the most efficient vehicle. So those are things that relate to my design ethos, being very efficient and being innovative and be able to produce something that, first, it is safe, and second, that is safe in the sense that the people that work on it get also benefit from that. And I feel like in that regard, Porsche is an incredible company. So, Ferdinand Porsche, at the time that they're, that they're at the virtual bankruptcy, thinks the, the fastest car they have was the Porsche 917 and was the car that dominated most of the races, you know, during the 70s and the late 60s. And he decided to use the wheelbase of that design to make a car. And he looked into one of the most successful production cars, which is the Volkswagen sedan. And he approached Volkswagen and said, you don't have a sports car. Here we have this design in which you can utilize, you know, your production line where you make the Volkswagen and you'll be able to have a, a very fast car that would replace your car Mangia, which is, even though it's a beautiful design, you know, it's not the best sports car. And Volkswagen considered the project and eventually they decided to go into it. The only thing is that they decided to go into it, calling it a Volkswagen Porsche 914. Hmm. And unfortunately, it was a marketing disaster because 
at the time in Europe, the people that liked Volkswagen liked Volkswagen because it was a very reasonable and economic car. Suddenly, they were presented with this very um, sophisticated sports car, and it's in a different price range. So for the people that like Volkswagen, this is a very expensive car. And for the people that like Porsche, this car was a Volkswagen. Right. So it didn't sell, it didn't sell very well, even though that to this day, like the design is still incredibly relevant. There are very few mid-engine cars. It handles incredibly well. The engine itself is incredibly efficient, even to this day, without any kind of, you know, aftermarket accessory in the engine, the car does 30 miles per gallon. Um, it has an amazing amount of storage. Since it's a mid-engine car, it has a storage in the back and a storage in the front. It has a car where you can remove the roof and make it uh, convertible, and there's room in the in the back trunk to store this roof, which is a hard roof, as opposed to a convertible like traditional yeah. canvas roof. So let this car was way, way ahead of its time. Let me ask um, you. Let me ask you. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but let me ask you a question because when you talk, it, there's such passion about what you do, and there's such detail in your passion, whether it's the Porsche, whether it's the furniture that you're doing now. Uh, whether it's the bags or the Rolex watches or, you know, we're involved together in designing the first metallic Visa black debit card. You know, I'm really curious about, you know, because we could, we could, and hopefully you will come back and we'll do more shows together, and I would have hoped that you would do that uh, with me. Um, but I want to know kind of the bigger, broader question of what allows you to turn your passion into design? Because really, when you talk about it, it's so inspirational, and it's and you know so much about it, and you feel it. I mean, you can tell from your, you know, what turn, what is it that allows you to turn this passion into design? I feel like when it's when I follow something that interests me, I feel like if I'm going to approach it, I'm going to approach it because I feel that I can do something, not necessarily better, but I feel like I can come up with a, with a different option and, and taking it from a different point of view. I'm not a traditional designer in the sense of my education, but with that, I feel like I'm able to come into design with a different perspective on things. And obviously, everything that I design, I'm very compelled by it. In the case of the Black Visa debit card, you know, when you were, when I was presented with this opportunity, it was one of the most interesting things, not only in terms of design, but in terms of the of utility of, of this, you know, tool. Because I feel like, first of all, I feel like, you know, a lot of the things that we buy, or that we consume, if we don't buy them with our own money, if we buy them with this, like, um, mm-hmm. virtual money or, like, credit money or all of that, we don't really look into the futility or, like, the use or, like, the way that these things are made. However, when we use our own money 
to buy things. We're usually much more careful and conscious as to what is it that we're buying and how is it that we're buying it. So when I was you know, presented with the opportunity to make a debit card, I was like, well, you know, I want it to be metal. I want it to be something that would be different from any other card because I feel like it was going to define, this card was going to define the person that was going to make purchases that were compelling. It was a, it's going to be a different type of consumer in the sense of it's going to be a very, very person with a sophisticated and, and worldly taste and and more than anything with a conscious about how is it that they're spending money and what kind of products or, or companies they support with their purchases. Well, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I know that... Uh... Uh, Aaron Tucker and myself were very honored to, uh, and Tyrese, and a lot of the people that are involved are honored to have you as a designer of the card, and, and, and we expect big things. I want to switch gears with you. We have about seven minutes left in the show. Um, I like to talk about the meaning of life at the end, but I have a very important you know, question talking about all these things, and that is your two boys. I want to know about your family, about your two boys, about the time you spend with them in the summers and surfing and snowboarding and the interests that you have and what it means to you to have these two boys in your life. Well, I feel like I'm, I'm incredibly, you know, children, I feel like they're an incredible gift. And with that in mind, you know, I try to enjoy this gift as much as I can. And I really feel like, you know, um, the more time that I'm able to spend with him, not only the more time that I'm able to learn things about him, but also learn things about myself and also get a different perspective on on things like, like being able to see things through their eyes. And I decided ever since, you know, I became a father that, I was going to spend as much time as possible with them. I I was because of my upbringing. I always, you know, I always understood that parenting is one of the most important gifts that we're giving. Is you know, parenting is one of those things where like you're giving an opportunity to make things better, to show somebody how to live better, to show someone that, you know, better sense of judgment, or to provide somebody that is very young with a different set of tools than the ones you have to be able to enjoy life at its fullest and to be able to be, you know, as credible and as pricing as possible. Well, so with I, that in mind, I, I do spend a lot of time with my kids, and we do spend a lot of time traveling. I feel like traveling is one of the most important things that we can do as human beings. And traveling, I don't necessarily mean like traveling, you know, to the other part of the world. I mean, traveling, you know, just being able to put ourselves in a vulnerable situation, in a different state, in a different place, where the place that we live, or the place that we were brought up, and be able to see people of different walks of life and, and 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 be really, really aware and, and, and grateful of any person that we get to meet 
in any place that we are. And I feel that when you travel, you have these wonderful opportunities to put yourself out there and, and learn so much from people. Well, let me ask you, uh, first of all, uh, it, it, you've been blessed many times over, uh, you know, even through tragedy and difficult times, and you've, uh, you're an inspiration certainly to me, and I imagine just about everybody you come in contact with, and I'm sure your boys are an inspiration to you like mine are to me. And I, I know we'll have many, many years to share our journey together. I want to ask you, because we only have a couple minutes left, uh, first of all, I'm going to ask you if you'll come back on the show. Hi, love you. Thank you for well, We're going to make a date and do that because there's so much more to talk about. I know many women and uh, particularly want to know about the new watch that's going to be created for them and about the handbags and stuff. But the core question I ask all of my guests over the last year and a half I've been doing the show is, as you look back on your journey, and we have just two minutes left, what do you feel is the meaning of life, the real purpose of life as you look at your life, as you look back on your journey? Well, I feel like as I look back on, on my journey, is the ability to give back, the ability to take something and, and leave it in a better place than you found it. I feel like that sense of satisfaction is, is it can be very easy to achieve, but a lot of the times we overlook it. And I feel like if you're able to touch or inspire anything or, or anyone, that sense of satisfaction is really what is important in this life. Because, you know, having a lot of money or like following, you know, material things just means that you have access to more material things. But that does not necessarily mean that you are becoming or you are a better person or that you are, you know, using, you know, whatever life has given you to share with people. And ultimately, we, we have to share everything that we know and that we have because we are one and the same. Well, I, I want to tell you that you're a true inspiration to so many people. Um, I'm enjoying getting to know you, and I'm looking forward to many, many years to share our journeys with each other. Our time's up, and I'd like to go ahead and thank you, Alejandro, for sharing your journey with us. Uh, I know you're unbelievably busy. You're, you're in Berlin right now with your family, and you have many, many responsibilities. So for taking the time, I want to thank you deeply from my heart uh, for sharing your journey. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our next episode. Until the next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success, and Alejandro to you, uh, my friend. I look forward to our journey, not just with the metallic black Visa debit card, but the many, many things that I hope we'll share over our years. And, and I thank you for being a great inspiration to me and to so many people. I really do. Thank you, Jimmy. I mean, I can only say that, you know, I feel the same way towards you. And, yes, I look forward to many, many experiences together. Thank you, my friend. Travel safe. I look forward to seeing you when you get back. And to our listeners, thank you for turning, tuning in to A Current Life. And we'll see you next Friday. Take care. 
Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans, the sink. Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.